Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book Betsy Tim Boom, Promise of God by Mike Evans with permission of Time Worthy Books, and we are on Chapter 38. At the police station, we were not enrolled on the record or processed into official custody, as was the usual practice. Instead, we were led to a large building one street over, which appeared to have once been a gymnasium, but had been converted to a holding room. Unlike the typical police station, this site was heavily guarded by German soldiers. Our normal Harlem policemen were relegated to wandering among the prisoners, functioning more like porters than patrolmen. In the center of the room was a large table stacked high with files and cluttered with papers. A German officer sat there, sorting through the folders. On the opposite side of the room, prisoners stood in line, and I watched as the officer at the table motioned to them. They dutifully crossed the floor to stand before him. One by one, he met with each one of them, asking questions, making notes, and then sending them away. Large mats were scattered across the floor. One of the soldiers ordered us to take a seat on one that lay to the left of the door. After helping Papa to his place, I sat beside Corey and rested her head in my lap. Already sick with influenza, I was certain she was miserable. Before long, a soldier directed us to form a line along the wall. We rose from our places and did as he said. Then the officer at the table called us, and we stood before him. In a monotone voice, he asked for our name, address, occupation, and marital status. It was all very perfunctory. Neither the angry confrontation nor the formal judicial proceeding I expected. When Papa reached the table, the officer looked at him a moment and said, If you won't cause any more trouble, old man, I'll let you die in your own bed. Papa squared his shoulders and said, You might as well keep me. If you send me home today, I will help anyone who asks. The officer shook his head in disbelief and gestured for Papa to move along. We returned to our place on the mat and took a seat with the others. A few minutes later, Levin Van Campton, a watchmaker from across town, came to where we were sitting and took a spot beside Papa. Casper, he said in a friendly tone, you are well, I hope. Yes, Papa nodded. I'm fine. They arrested you too? These days, it seems everyone gets arrested, Van Campen equipped. Have they told you the charges against you? No, how about you? One hears many things, Van Campen responded. I suppose you'll find out soon enough. Did they leave guards at your house? Yes, Papa nodded once more. Did they do that at yours? Van Campen ignored the question and continued. The people left behind are the ones I think about, the ones left in the hiding places, afraid to come out for fear of capture waiting for someone to knock on the door and tell him it's okay. He cut his eyes at Papa. You left them food, I'm sure, but only enough for a day or two. While they talked, Kick leaned next to me and whispered, this guy's an informant. How do you know? Have you heard what he's been asking? He asks questions, but he never answers. And his questions indicate what the Germans are thinking, that we have a secret room and that others are hiding there right now. They just can't find it. They sent this guy over here to try and to get it out of Grandpapa. It was like a blindfold that had been removed from my eyes. At once I knew Kick was right. I heard what Van Campen was saying, and even as he talked, his words did not have the ring of truth. But there in the gymnasium, surrounded by friends and family members, all of us facing an uncertain future, I'd ignored what I sensed inside myself and let them talk. 
Now I could see the truth, and I wanted to warn Papa to keep quiet. But there was nothing I could do or say to tip him off to the danger Van Campen posed. Papa loved people, and he loved to talk, two traits not particularly helpful in this situation we faced. I was sure he would answer Van Campen's questions, launch into a long, rambling discourse, and disclose things that would imperil us all. But I needn't have worried. Papa stared at him a moment as if studying his face and then said quietly, I don't see you much anymore, Levin. What happened? Ah, I shrugged, you know, work keeps me busy. You sold well this year, Papa asked. Best year we ever had, Levin said, said proudly. Those Germans are a pain, but they buy our goods. Tell me something. How did, how did you do it? Do what? How did you get watches to sell in your shop? Van Campen looked perplexed. What do you mean? I mean, Papa repeated, how did you get watches? I only ask because everyone else I know is unable to get them. They place orders, but the watches never arrive. Yet you seem to have no trouble. That's what I do, Van Campen looked around nervously as if searching for somewhere else to go. I place orders, they arrive at my shop. But who do you have to bribe to get them? Van Campen's eyes narrowed. You're accusing me of bribery? What do you have to give them, Levin? Did you give them your soul? Van Campen jumped to his feet in a loud voice says, I don't have to take this from a Jew lover, and he stormed off in a huff. After an hour or so, it appeared the officer seated at the table had interviewed everyone in the room. He closed his files, stacked them neatly in place, and departed from the room. When he was gone, Corey started talking. We should agree on what to say and get everything worked out between us. If all we say the same thing, we can be sure. Wait, I said, cutting her off. I stood and gestured with a nod of my head for her to follow. We walked a few steps away from the others, and I whispered, There are informants among us. Who, she asked, glancing around. Van Campen, for one. I heard what Kick said, but Van Campen is gone. There are likely others. We should keep quiet while we're in here. But what if our stories don't match? The only way they could not be the same is if we did not tell the truth. If we tell the truth, we'll be in prison for life or worse. I think we're going to be in here a long time either way, don't you? Corey's shoulders slumped and tears formed in her eyes. I'm scared. I know. I put my arm around her, but we're not going to react from fear. How can we react any other way? We will remember what the angel said to the shepherds. Fear not, for behold, I bring good news of great joy. She rested her head on my shoulder, and I led her back to where the others were seated. In a little while, Rolf entered the room with a group of policemen announced that they would provide an escort to take us to the toilet. A number of people availed themselves of the opportunity. As we made our way in that direction, he came alongside us and quietly said, You'll be alone in the toilet. You can flush any papers there. That evening, we were served hot rolls and water, both of which tasted very good, and the next morning we had rolls again. There was not much to do except lie on the mats and rest, which was what most of us did. Around noon of the day after we were arrested, additional German soldiers entered the room, took positions on every side. When they were in place, a young lieutenant strutted to the center and announced that we should prepare to exit the building. A few minutes later, the soldiers began herding us towards the door. A large crowd was gathered outside, and as we left the building, I scanned the faces, looking for someone familiar. Buses were parked nearby, and the soldiers nudged us in that direction. Corey and I took Papa by the arms and steadied him as we walked. 
Then I saw Teen's face, her hand waving to us. I called to Corey and pointed her out. We were all crying by then, but at least we had the assurance that someone knew where we were. On board the bus, Corey and I took a seat with Papa between us. William, Noli, and Kick were in the next row. It was a beautiful Harlem day with sun shining brightly, though the air was bitterly cold. Once we were settled in place, I stared blankly out the window at a glare reflecting off the windows of the building around us. Then a rear door to the police station opened and two soldiers appeared, dragging a man between them. His clothes were tattered and dirty and his head was bloodied. I was about to say what an awful sight he was when Corey exclaimed, That's Herman Slurring. A soldier stepped towards the open door of the bus and with a stern look on his face barked, Silence! There'll be silence in here. We paid him no attention and watched out the window as they dragged Slurring to the bus beside us lifting him up the steps and dropped him onto a seat inside. Corey was beside herself with anger. Look what they did to him, she fumed. Who would do such a thing? At the sight of him, waves of sadness swept over me, and the first time I felt for myself what Papa had tried to explain to me many times before. The Germans were in a perilous position, worse even than our own. Yes, I said softly, it's so sad. Sad? Corey jerked her head around to face me. It's infuriating. How can they treat someone like that? They can't even see what they've done. They've trapped in a web of evil. Think how sad it is that they feel compelled to do such things. Papa nodded and added, they will rule the day that they raise their hand against God's chosen people. While we talked, the sadness inside me gave me way to the utter and complete realization of the hopelessness that enshroud the Germans. As if staring into the abyss myself, I sensed how completely impossible it was for them to see what they had become. Hopeless, impossible, except for God. So I closed my eyes, and right there on that bus, I prayed for them. Though my stomach ached from hunger and my back ached from sleeping on the mat the night before, the bus ride from Harlem was not unpleasant. We meandered through the city before turning towards the coast and drove south along the coastal road. The Dutch countryside was beautiful, and I was struck by so much of it remained untouched by the world. From the way we'd stripped the trees from Harlem for fuel, I was sure the countryside would be bare as well, but it was not, and I found it refreshing. Two hours later, we arrived at the government building, The Hague. Someone said it was the Gestapo headquarters for the Netherlands, but a sign out front noted it was the home of the Ministry of Justice Administrative Division. With the bus at the stop, the driver switched off the engine and we were ordered out. We assembled in the cold and were directed towards the side door of the building. Inside, a wide hall led to a large meeting room with a table atop a raised dais at the far end. Seated there was a man dressed in a business suit. A clerk sat at a second table in arms reach away. Someone in line with us said the man on the dais was Rudolf Schreckler, a civil magistrate. A group of prisoners that apparently arrived ahead of us were just leaving the room while we waited for them. Captain Borman and Lieutenant Kruger appeared at Schreckler's side. Slowly and methodically, each person in turn stepped forward to the table. The clerk handed Schreckler a file and he paused a moment to scan the documents inside. Once or twice, he returned the file to the clerk and said something to the person standing before him. And then they were led out a door near the corner. Most, however, were shuffled to the opposite side of the room, where they formed a line 
and waited some more. When I appeared at the table, Shackler asked me the same perfunctory questions as the army officer back in Harlem, inquiring about my name, age, marital status, and number of children. He seemed tired and distracted. I was tired, too, and I'd given the same information several times already. When he asked me, I said, I gave that already. He looked up at me and said calmly, To whom did you give it? To the army officer in Harlem when they brought us to the police station. That was for the army, he sighed. This is for the court. Did anyone tell you the charges against you? No. He looked at the papers in my file and said, Sedition. That's all it says. Sedition. He glanced over at Captain Borman. You have to specify what they did. You can't say, and there's no complaining witness. How was this charge brought? Borman stepped to Shackley's side, rested one hand on the desktop, and leaned closer. This was one of the ringleaders in Harlem. He pointed to the file. This is the complaining witness. Shacklin looked again. Vogel? My heart sank. If I'd only listened to the voice inside, none of this would have happened. Yes, Borman answered. They were hiding Jews and helping them escape. He pointed to Corey. That one is her sister. They were in this together. Shackley looked at me and glanced over at Corey. He was serious about what he was doing, processing prisoners through his court in a way that at least gave a nod to the Netherlands' tradition of justice. But I noticed also in his eyes a warm kindness, a hint that he'd rather be anywhere else than where he was. After several hours in the judicial building, we were bused to the penitentiary at Slavanger. It was after midnight when we arrived. We hadn't had nothing to eat since the hot rolls Ralph gave us that morning. German soldiers led us from the bus into a large building where for the first time we were met by uniformed prison guards, both male and female. By their uniforms and personal demeanor, I knew they were civil employees of the Dutch government, fellow Netherlanders. From that point forward, we were under their immediate control, but German soldiers manned the doorways to the prison and were stationed strategically throughout the building. We might have been in Dutch custody, but no one could doubt we were the prisoners of the German army. In the corridor, the guards divided the men from the women, men on one side, women on the other. I was apprehensive about this and realized that Corey, Noli, and I were about to be separated from Papa, William, and Kick, and the other men in our group. From the lick in her eyes, I knew Corey realized it too. A few minutes later, the guards ordered the women down the corridor. I glanced back at Papa one last time, and he gave me a wave to say goodbye. Further on, we came to a corner and turned onto a narrow hallway lined with steel doors on either side. Ten doors down, we stopped, and a guard called my name. As I stepped forward, they opened one of the doors to let me into the cell. I glanced at Corey and Noli and mouthed the words, I love you. Then the door slammed shut behind me. Three women in the cell already, two of them seated in opposite corners at the far end of the room. A single cot occupied the center, and on it lay a third woman. She was curled in a fetal position, her body covered by a thin woolen blanket. Her body shook as she trembled with fever. The sleeping mat, not much thicker than the blanket, lay on a floor. One near each of the two women in the corner and a third one by the door. A row of pegs rang along the wall, apparently put there for us to hang our coats, but they were empty, as the building was cold and everyone wore all the clothes they owned. I suppose the mat near the door was mine, and I sat down beside it with my coat pulled tightly around my waist. A woman in the far corner, older and somewhat larger, said in a gravelly voice, Good, you're finally here. Now we can turn out the lights and we'll get all get to sleep.
a young girl sat in the corner to my right, and she smiled at me and said, my name is Nell, Nell Van Houten from Huffwag. Ever heard of it? My mind was reeling from the shock of first being arrested, then taken to jail, and now to prison. I was separated from Corey, Noli, William, Kick, and Papa. In one fell swoop, the Germans had shattered our family, and all because we'd helped others escape the tyranny of the German death camps. I wanted to scream and cry. I wanted to hit somebody, pound on them until they came to their senses and released us. I wanted many things, but the last thing I wanted was to engage my cellmates in meaningless conversation. Yet when I looked down the hall to Nell and opened my mouth to say all of that, I heard myself instead saying, halfway, of course, halfway, halfway between Harlem and Amsterdam. But I'd never heard anyone from there who was called Van Houten. How about you, she asked. What's your name? I'm Betsy, I replied, sensing no harm in telling her that much. Where are you from? I didn't really want to say, but she seemed nice, and I had no way of knowing how long I would be in that room with them. Better to be there with friends than enemies. Harlem, I answered. The old woman looked over at me. So what did you do to wind up in here? You don't exactly look like the law-breaking type. They have accused me of hiding Jews. It felt like a betrayal to answer so indirectly, but I was unsure of myself and apprehensive about admitting to anything. Accused you of, of it? Is it true? Is what true? The charge. Her tone was, was becoming more strident. Were you hiding them? I still didn't want to answer, but she was sitting only a few feet away, which made it difficult to avoid the question, and I was already feeling angry with myself for the manner in which I replied at first. Finally, I said, I would never turn my back on God's people. Ha, she scoffed. They're no more God's people than we are. At that point, I decided she was open to questioning as I was, so I returned the favor and asked, what's your name? Helen. She didn't give me her last name, so I asked Helen what? Bruma. Her name darted around and her voice changed. Helen Bruma. Where did you live? Amsterdam, she grumbled, as if it's any of your business. I ignored her attitude and glanced over at the woman lying on the cot. Who is she? Nobody knows her name, Helen replied. Her eyes darted away once more and she pulled the sleeping mat closer to her side. They put her in here yesterday. Haven't heard a word out of her since. The guards gave her the cot, Nell explained. They said we had to give it to whoever is the weakest. The rest of us sleep on the floor. She pointed to the mat laying nearest to me. That one's yours. The mat was dusty and trampled with footprints. I thought of lying on it to sleep was repulsive. Instinctively, I stood to shake it out. As I did, a cloud of dust arose and the others complained. It was really dirty. The lights were still on, so I rolled it up and stood it on the corner by the door. Then I took a seat in front of it and leaned back with the rolled mat as a cushion against the wall. Nell rolled hers too, placed it next to mine, and sat down beside me. From down the hall, I heard the sound of metal doors banging closed, and then a click, click, click echoed towards me. What's that sound, I asked. Nell listened for a moment and said, that's the guards walking the halls. They patrol up and down, night and day, always there, watching and listening. Yeah, Helen spoke up. They're always listening. Maybe you too should remember that and stop talking so much. Her eyes met mine. In here, you never know who you're talking to or who's listening. Nell nodded her head in agreement, but spent the next ten minutes telling me about herself. I learned she'd been arrested for prostitution, a life she detested. 
but one she felt was forced upon her by her circumstances. Both parents were killed during the invasion, and she was left on her own. With no skill or training, all she had was a youthful body, which she rented out to anyone willing to pay. It's not much of a living, but it's the only way I had to survive. Weren't you worried about what might happen? You mean, like catching a disease or getting pregnant? A cloud came over her face. I've never had a disease, but I was pregnant, twice. I had an abortion both times. Her eyes went hollow. After the first one, I cried almost every day. But with the second, I hardly felt any emotion at all. I wanted to quit being a prostitute, but everything seemed hopeless without something to eat, so I kept doing it. In a quick jolt of emotion, anger shot through me as she spoke. I longed to be with a man in genuine intimacy, and here she was selling as a cheap imitation. I wanted children, but it denied them to myself out of a sense of moral responsibility. Yet here she was telling me she had killed two before they left her womb. My heart ached, my neck throbbed, and inside I was screaming at her. How could you do that? Then just as quickly, I thought of Jesus and how frustrated he must have been. I took a deep breath and did my best to let the emotion pass. Then I heard the Holy Spirit say to me, I want to give it to her. The anger subsided, and in its place I found compassion and kindness. She was a gentle person. I could tell that by, by our brief conversation. But with life forced upon her, she had to make some bitterly harsh choices. I reached over and took her hand. Life is never hopeless with God. Yeah, well, tell him to hurry up and get here, Helen growled. It looks pretty hopeless now. Neil looked at me. Is that how you stay calm? If she had known the torment I felt inside, she would not have asked that question. But I chose not to tell her that, and instead I said, I'm not always calm. But whatever confidence I have comes from knowing that no matter what happens to me, God is always with me, and everything will work out in the end. Those were the words I spoke to myself as much as to her, and as I said them, I sensed my spiritual equilibrium return. Nell seemed intrigued by my answer. Do you think God would give me that kind of confidence? Of course. But how? Just ask. You mean pray? Yes, I nodded. And then I led her through a simple prayer of repentance, one that I'd heard Papa pray many times. He would have been proud to hear us, and thinking of him brought tears to my eyes, but I made it through without sobbing. As we finished, I opened my eyes and saw Helen staring at us. I was arrested for hiding people, too, she said without prompting. Teenagers. Soldiers in our area had been deporting kids to work in the factories near Berlin. Awful way to die, being worked to death. I hid three in my basement, but they couldn't keep quiet. Someone heard them. Soldiers came and took them. Then they arrested me. I didn't do it because I love God. I didn't do it because they're Jews, which they weren't, or even because they were teenagers needing a future. Her face turned up in a sneer. I did it because I hate the Germans. Before I could respond, the lights went out and the room was totally dark. I heard Helen slide her sleeping mat across the floor. It made a crinkling sound as she lay on it. Nell unrolled her mat, too, and lay a short distance from me. For a moment, I just sat there listening to the silence, broken only by the sound of the guard's footsteps in the hall. Then I reached behind me for my own mat, spread it flat on the floor, and lay down. 
A draft came from underneath the door, and when I looked in that direction, I saw a streak of light from the hall seeping through the gape in the sill. In a few minutes, my eyes adjusted to the darkness and a light falling across my end of the room. From that thin opening seemed as bright as one might ever need. Stretched out on the mat, I thought of all that had happened in the last two days. Bogle visiting us at the house to ask for help, the soldiers coming shortly after he left. I was certain he had betrayed us, but Captain Borman made it seem as though they had arrested him too. Yet I didn't see him at the police station or the holding room in Harlem. He wasn't with us when he reached the Hague. Anger rose inside me again and the sense of betrayal swept over me. I was certain he had turned us into the Germans. Then I thought of Nell and the prayer we'd just prayed and how I'd suggested to her that God could make a way of hope even in an environment as hopeless as our small cell. Help me, Lord, I whispered. And then I heard myself saying, I forgive Jan Vogel and I forgive Captain Borman and Lieutenant Kruger. Moments later, the sense of peace I felt earlier returned. I closed my eyes and in spite of the hardness of the floor, soon drifted off to sleep. Sometime in the night, the familiar dream returned with me soaring high above a lush green landscape, looking down on a large house surrounded by gardens and flower beds filled with tulips. Men and women working the beds and Corey was with them. This time, as they looked up at me, I saw one of them was Captain Borman and beside him, Lieutenant Kruger. Only they weren't dressed as soldiers anymore, but as gardeners and they were laughing and smiling. That's the end of chapter 38, and we'll, next week we'll have chapter 39 and see what happens. I love you, I'm praying for you, and bye-bye for now.